Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Hello, my friends. This is Rick Thomas. Thank you so much for joining me for this presentation. I am with Life Over Coffee, where we have conversations for transformation. Our ministry mission statement is that we exist to bring hope and help to you and others by creating resources that spark conversations for transformation. The two big things that we want to do for other people is to bring hope, hope in the gospel, and practical help. We do that by creating resources, not just for you, but also for all of your friends. And so one of the best things that you can do for us, not only to practically be helped by what we present, but also to share our resources with others. And I trust that this will spark conversations for transformation. The title of this presentation is 17 Quick and Dirty Tips for Building a Relationship. And so I want to walk through a lot of information, and I hope it will help not only bring hope, but also bring practical help in your most intimate relationships. The big idea for broken, fallen people to live well with each other, it requires getting into the muckiness of each other's lives. Maybe let's begin with a, a statement like this. It is so hard to make friends. And then as you see on the screen here, fill in the blank. This is a common complaint. Let me fill in the blank. It is so hard to make friends at my local church. That is actually what I was thinking when I made this slide, because that is one of the more common complaints that I hear from Christians. But you can fill in the blank with anything that you wish. It's so hard to make friends with people at work, people at school, certain types of people, maybe with my spouse, maybe with my family, but it's so hard to make friends. And I trust that what I have for you will help you at least with some of your relationships, but not all of them, of course. And one of the reasons that it's hard to make friends is because all of us have universal Adamic tendencies. I mean, we're all made the same, meaning that we're cut from the same Adamic cloth. And so there are universal tendencies within all of us. Let me walk through a few of those. One of those is that we're born isolationist. When sin came into the world, sin is an invis- invisible barrier that separates people, individuals from each other. Adam did this, as we see, by putting on fig leaves, and all of a sudden there was shame involved. He began to cover himself, began to run from God. He was an isolationist all of a sudden where he lived in the freedom and the security of the garden with the Lord and also with Eve. But sin is a divider among men, and sin will come in and separate us. And the temptation will be to withdraw and to isolate. You have done that, I'm pretty sure. I know that I have, and that is an Adamic tendency. And, of course, when we isolate, well, we are in our silos. And at that point, we're not able to interact with other people to participate in the body of Christ. We tend to hide behind our fig leaves. Maybe you can see this metaphorically as you walk into your church building on Sunday morning without having a judgmental attitude. Because of our sense of shame, you know that everyone in the building, for the most part, to varying degrees, uh, they're hiding behind their fig leaves. They are not revealing their truest selves. Now, there is some wisdom in that because the fool will just tell you anything and everything about themselves. They have no social filter. Of course, I'm not talking about that person. But way over on the other side of the road in the other ditch, you have people that they are not just they're not transparent at all. And most people struggle that way. And so the temptation is to isolate even in the midst of a hundred people. And so you can come to your church meeting on Sunday morning and be tucked away and hidden in plain sight. 
You can interact with other people and people will think, well, wow, I just enjoyed being with him. And they never know because you just don't have that kind of a relationship with a certain number of people within your fellowship at your local church. And so you are, you're intimate, you're in the group, you're on the team, you're part of the community, but you're isolated in plain sight, hiding behind fig leaves. And we do that because of our sense of shame. Born in Adam means that there is an internal awkwardness within all of us. We are inhibited. We see that in children when they're very young, when the stranger comes to the door and they wrap themselves around their daddy's leg uh, because they are insecure. Uh, They're not going to put themselves out there. And what we want to do as parents is we want to train our children. We want to equip them to grow strong and sturdy in the Lord, to overcome that shame through the transformative power of the gospel, to where they feel whole and complete inside and not internally awkward. And so they have reasonable boldness and reasonable confidence to step into any social setting and to communicate. But there is an inhibiting factor for many of us, and for some reason, it's sin that we don't overcome it. And I'm talking about Adamic sin, not necessarily anything that you've done wrong. Uh, Just God made you that way. You could say it that way. I'm not blaming that on God. I'm just saying that we're born in Adam. Now, there could be some things that you do that keep you inhibited and keep you isolating. And that's why I'm doing this presentation, because I trust that this will be an encouragement to you, that it will spark conversation for transformation, and that you will become more engaging and overcome whatever those Adamic hindrances are in your life. Unfortunately, some people can be okay with shallowness. They live in the shallows, and they're just quite okay with it. And that is unfortunate because there's so much deepness and robustness and richness that is in each life, but it is only discovered by getting beyond the shallows in a person's life. But the problem with getting beyond the shallows is that we're going to run into sin in other people's lives, as well as our own, and sin is the great disruptor, and some people will just withdraw at that point because it's just too dirty, it's too mucky, it's too much challenge, it's too much difficulty, and so I'd rather just live in superficiality. And then we can explain our lack of friends by blaming others. One of the most common ways that I hear that is someone would say, I went to this church and nobody spoke to me. That is an unfortunate statement, not because it's it's unfactual. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that if we understand Adamic tendencies, then, well, if nobody spoke to you, that means you spoke to no one. And so what we want to do is rather than blaming because we have no friends, we want to show ourselves friendly. And just because this is a new church where everyone has been there for a long time but you, and you are the guest on this particular Sunday— then what you want to do is engage people. Because it's a new church, it doesn't mean that we are to be passive on our first day. No, we interact with people because we are Christians. We have a gospel impulse. We have a gospel edge. And it doesn't matter if we're going into the grocery store. It doesn't matter if we're going into the school building, into the workplace or the church building. And it's our first time in any of those venues. That's not even relevant. What is relevant is that we are overcomers, and we are men and women on a mission. And so with that gospel edge and that gospel impulse, nobody would ever go into a church building and and complain by a lack of friendship 
if they have this gospel impulse because they will go to other people and they will make friends. When I pastored for a number of years, we used to have this tongue-in-cheek rule with our church members. And I say tongue-in-cheek because I would not want you to hear this as authoritarian or legalistic. We didn't communicate it that way, but we made a hyperbolic statement, much like Jesus would. We'd make a hyperbolic statement to get across a point. And what we would say sometimes is that when you come to the church meeting on Sunday morning, I do not want you to ever talk to any of your friends, meaning I want you to go meet someone new. I want you to meet someone that you've never met before. I want you to identify that person who comes in, sits by themselves, never talks to anyone. I want you to go and step into their space and minimally just say hey to them. Give them your name, ask for their name, and try to have a conversation with them because they're not doing that, but we can do that. So we would tongue-in-cheek say that. Uh, Just try to encourage people to think outside of their own habituations because you see the people in the church building on Sunday who have been going there for 100 years, they have their habits. They go in the church building, they sit in the same place, they do the same routine, they speak to the same people. And because of that habit, it's like driving the work, driving to work, rather, a hundred times. Well, after a few times, you're paying no attention to anything around you. You're living life by rote. God made us habitual creatures on purpose, and that is a good thing so that we're not distracted all the time and we can focus on the main thing. Well, one of the downsides to habituations is that we can lose our peripheral vision and we just live in this tunnel because we've done it so many times. And so we have to aggravate ourselves, shake ourselves out of our routine, especially when we are attending a church meeting. And maybe we can create a new habit, a habit of intentionality, that when I walk into the church meeting on Sunday, that rather than just making a beeline to my chair, my seat, to my pew, I'm going to actually scan the room. I'm going to use peripheral vision. This is my new habituation. And you look for that person who's alone or someone that you've never met, and you begin to build a relationship with them. But the person who blames, saying, I went into the church and no one shook my hand, when I hear that, and I will not necessarily say this to them because I might not know them, Many times you'll read that online, and I have. And so I won't say this to them, but what I'm thinking is, that's on you, bro. That's on you, sister. Uh, Because as a gospel-enlivened and enlightened individual, you walk into it. Jesus goes into a place. There's nobody shook my hand. That doesn't even sound right. No, Jesus would step into that space, and because he has gospel force, he will, and gospel intentionality, he will start shaking hands and talking to people and insert himself because he's a man on a gospel mission, and so should we. It takes work for two dirt claws to get along with each other. If you attempt to get into the messiness of another life, guess what? You're going to get dirty. And I'm using the language that Paul had in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse number 7, that we are jars of clay. And if you back that up all the way to Genesis chapter 2, verse number 7, it says God created man out of the dust of the earth. Adam was a clay man, earth man, red man. He came from the dust of the ground, and he's going back to the dust of the ground. You and I are dirt clods. It takes two jars of clay or two dirt clods to get along with each other. And whenever you rub two dirt clods together, the messiness of another life, guess what? You're going to get some dirt on you. But that is the problem. That is the tension. Getting into the muck and mire of another life is the call from God 
and the point of the gospel. That's why we can't say, I went to this new church and nobody shook my hand. I mean, on the face of that, that is really ridiculous. Getting into the muck and mire of another life is the call from God. We are men and women on a mission. It is the call of God. It's the point of the gospel. It's all about going to others and getting into their business, even if it's the first time you showed up at a local church. I actually attended a church meeting just a few weeks ago, as a matter of fact, and they their ushers were falling down on the job. In fact, I'm not even sure that they were doing their job. I found out later they did have ushers. But a person walked in and couldn't find a seat, and so I was sitting in the back, and as we typically do when we uh, visit, and uh, I noticed they couldn't find a seat, so I walked over and I said, "Hey, you know, here's a seat over here. I found one for this person." And they said to me, "Oh, thank you, uh, thank you so much. I'm new here." And I said, well, I am too. This is my first Sunday. <laughs> so on my first Sunday, I elevated myself to the level of usher, and I started ushering people into the building, or at least this one individual. And we can do that. We want to be aware of what's going on around us. We're looking for people that we can interact with. And so before we begin, I give you these 17 tips. There's a couple things I need for you to think about. First of all, these 17 tips are in sequential order. That will make sense as we move along. But more importantly, I want you to know that this is not a formula, meaning if I interact all these, engage all 17 of these tips, then I'm going to have deep friends with everybody that I meet. No, that's not how this works. As a matter of fact, most folks will not want to do this. Remember that part about two dirt clods rubbing against each other and getting messy and getting dirty? Most people will count the cost, and it, when they count the cost, when they do the accounting, they will say, no, nah, I'm not going to pay this. This is way too much. It's way too uh, involved. It's way too intense. It's way too mess messy. And so this is not a formula, and what you're going to find is really a vetting process because as you move through these 17 tips, you're going to find that most people, the majority of people, will not go this far with you. But that's okay because you can only have so many intimate friends because of the time investment and the depth that you go, the things that you talk about, what's involved in building a deep relationship. You can't even do it with a lot of people. You can only do it with a small number of friends because of the time that's involved. And so what you want to do is to build relationally with every human that you can possibly build relationally with. But it's in concentric circles. And so you will have the multitudes way out there. In fact, farther out there, what you will have is the unregenerate world that you engage with. Obviously, they're not going to be in your most intimate circle. And so you'll build relationally with the unregenerate world, but you can only go so far with them. And then you'll have the multitudes. I'm looking at Jesus' Jesus's relationship calendar here. Then you'll have the multitudes that you'll engage with, but you can't spend intimate time, unlimited time with them either, but you can relate to them. And then you'll have Mary and Martha and Zacchaeus. You'll have Nicodemus. You'll have peripheral friends. And then inside of that, you'll have the nine apostles that you're intimate with. And inside of that, you would have three, Peter, James, and John, that you're more intimate with, and then you're in the middle. And that's kind of how it works. And so all of you can be friends with everybody, but only a few of them will will enter into your most intimate space and this is where all 17 
of these tips will benefit you and your most intimate friends. And so they're not in sequential order. I mean, they are in sequential order, but you can only do this with a few. And so I'm going to lay these tips out for you. And here they are on the screen for those of you who are watching the video. And you can screenshot this if you want. Uh, I will show it to you again at the end. But these are the 17 tips, and I'm laying them out for you here as mile markers so you can see the sequential process, and I'm going to walk you through over the next few minutes. And so the 17 tips are being prayerful, being repentant, being inconvenienced, being sacrificial, being relational. Number six, being available, being hospitable, being intentional, being honest, being vulnerable, being transparent, being encouraging, number 12. 13 is being gracious, being discerning. 15 is being intrusive. 16 tips, being trustworthy. And then the final 17 quick and dirty tips for building a relationship, doing it right. And those will be the application questions that I will share with you at the end. So again, you're welcome to screenshot this. And of course, you can go back through these as you watch the video over again, and you can slow it down and stop it at different points and really uh, simmer over these, soak and uh, simmer over some of these points here. And I have questions for each one of them. So let's get going. These are tips one through four. And so I have them and collected them in batches. And so these are tips one through four in order. And the category for this grouping is preparing your heart for others. And so before you actually engage another human being, you want to make sure that your heart is in the right place before you start talking to them. And so these first four tips will do that. Tip number one, being prayerful. Now, prayer is the presumed starting place. Not because it's obvious. I mean, we're Christians, so what would you expect me to say? I'm going to build a relationship. Well, pray about that. Well, that is a cliche, and I get it. But just because it is a cliche, it does not mean that it's unimportant. The reason I say prayer at the very beginning is because it's absolutely essential, vital. Everything should be a matter of prayer, especially how we think about our involvement with others. And so we want to begin vertically. Our hearts must be ready and actively prepared to love others as we love ourselves. There's a passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter number 1, verses 1 through 9. And in this passage of Scripture, we read about Paul's prayer life for the Corinthians. He was actively engaging God privately before he engaged the Corinthians publicly. He wanted to get his heart in the right place. And he told them that I have been praying for you. And he did this repeatedly. By the way, he said this to the folks at Thessalonica as well. Paul began relationship building by being prayerful, and we want to do the same thing. And so we want to go to God and address him in prayer. Now, that could mean all sorts of things. It could be that maybe you are afraid. Maybe you struggle with shame more than the next person, and you're inhibited about stepping into a relationship. Well, you need to be fortified by prayer. And so you share that with God. Maybe you need to confront someone. You need to bring corrective care to a friend. Obviously, you would go to God in prayer and say, God, this is what I want to do. This is what I, I believe I need to do. 
uh, help, Holy Spirit, illuminate my mind. Help me to see what I'm maybe missing, what I cannot see. Guide me in your word. What we want to do is to fortify our souls. We want to be sturdy and confident in God as we step into the business of building relationships with other dirt clods because it's going to be messy. You're going to be disappointed. This is what fallen people do. I disappoint people. And so do you. And so we want to make sure that we are prayerful, not just in the beginning, but all the way through. The question is the application question. And I'll ask you one at the bottom of each of these 17 points. Are you actively praying for a mind motivated to seek the interest of others more than your interest? Thinking about Philippians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Tip number two, being repentant. If you are actively praying about others, you will be motivated to make personal changes for the sake of others. And so as you ask God to give you insight, to illuminate your mind, to calibrate your heart, to help you see what you might not be seeing, more than likely, or most definitely in some situations, God is going to identify things that will encourage you, prompt you, maybe even admonish or warn you that you need to make some changes. If you're not open to change, then you're not going to have quality relationships. Though Jesus did not have to repent, that's what this tip is, being repentant, and and I would not imply in any way that Jesus had to repent because he was sinless, but he had to change. He had to change for the sake of others. Philippians 2, 7, he took on the form of a servant. Our first missionary came to earth. And he became a man. He changed 100% man. The hypostatic union, he is 100% God and 100% man. He operated as 100% man here on the earth, never repenting, but he did change. And you know this intuitively, that if you're going to build a relationship with someone, you'll have to make an adjustment. This happens sometimes when two people get married. They don't want to adjust. And if they don't make those changes, appropriate changes, Well, there will be conflict in their relationship. The application question is, are you prepared to change, to build genuine relationships with others? Change appropriately, change biblically, changing with humility. It doesn't mean that you become a doormat or that you become everything that the other person wants you to be. I'm not saying that at all. So we don't want to read this question cynically or read this tip cynically. And I know some people can because they will map their bad experience over what I'm saying here. And the only way that they can see this is through a cynical eye. And, of course, I'm not saying that at all. Tip number three, being inconvenienced. The first thing you'll have to deal with as far as changing yourself is the concept of being inconvenienced for the sake of others. Parents know this all too well. We want to build a relationship with our children. Well, we live in a perpetual state of inconvenience. It seems that way, especially, uh, I mean, absolutely before the empty nesting stage and we're always bending and changing and uh, doing gymnastics for our children appropriately biblically not having a child-centered home where the children run the home but with humility and understanding with with biblical clarity uh, we are willing to be inconvenienced for the sake of others people will not meet your expectations but will probably disappoint you there will be times that you will have to overlook sin that is one way that you'll be inconvenienced when christ decided to build relationally with us he had to leave his place to come to ours i'm going to say that that was inconvenient philippians chapter 2 verse number 7 the question is are you willing to alter your lifestyle appropriately biblically 
for the sake of others. Are you willing to be uh, or to make those changes to be inconvenient? Some people have preferences that are so highly elevated that they will not budge. It would be my way or the highway. And we're not talking about biblical mandates. We're talking about personal preferences. There's too stubborn, too proud, have no flexibility when the best thing that could happen in the relationship is for them to be a little bit flexible, a little bit spontaneous to build relationally with the other person. But again, you can't do that if you're unwilling to be inconvenienced. Number four, being sacrificial. Being inconvenienced could mean changing your plans, altering your preferences, or not getting your way in a momentary manner. Being sacrificial is pouring out your life with an unsure return on investment. The ROI on the relationship, the return on investment, is unsure, but you're willing to sacrifice. Christ left his home, took on flesh, lived among us, which was inconvenient, but then he gave up his life for us. It was also sacrificial. The question is, what is the cost of your discipleship to build a relationship with someone now, sometimes it could look like this, that an individual did something wrong or they're doing something wrong and everything in you wants to rebuke them or correct them. But you're going to overlook this in the moment because you're playing a longer game in this relationship. And so you're going to sacrifice your preferences. You're going to sacrifice what you want to say because you will, there's a trajectory in your mind and this could really mess things up if I did this now. And so I want to build a relational bridge with them. And so I'm more about building the relational bridge with them than correcting them all along the way. And then once that relational bridge is built, well, then maybe at a later point, you can bring or truck heavier truth across that bridge because you sacrificed all the way up to this point to fortify, to build that relational bridge. That is one illustration of the cost of discipleship. Again, the question is, what is the cost of your discipleship to build a relationship with someone? And so these are tips one through four. I titled it, the category is preparing your heart for others. They are prayerful, repentant, inconvenienced, and sacrificial. Now let's look at tips five through seven. These are titled Providing Attitude and Context for Others. Again, we are in sequential order here. These are five through seven. Number five is being relational. Christ could relate to people because he understood them. He understood the psyche, the soul. He knew his audience. He spent time thinking about others and discerning how to relate to them. It reminds me of Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Consider, the Hebrew writer said, consider how to stir one another up, how to provoke one another to love and good deeds. I am highlighting the word consider in that text. We want to spend time thinking about others, considering them. Christ considered you. He considered us. He wanted to connect relationally with an individual or a group. And he did. And we see this in John chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. It says in this passage of Scripture that nobody needed to tell Jesus about man because Jesus knew what was in man. Well, we can know what is in man as well because we have the psychology book, the study of the soul. The Bible is a book that tells us about ourselves. Now, it does a whole lot more than that. Primarily, it tells us about a great God who came in to redeem and to uh, restore us. 
but it also tells us about ourselves, our souls, what is in us. And the more that we understand God and the more that we understand ourselves, the more that we can understand other people. We can understand their souls. We can understand what's in them, why they tick, why they do what they do. And we can have great not only self-awareness, but we can have other awareness as well. And so we want to relate to others because we are not unlike others. We're very similar, cut from the same Adamic cloth. Do you understand people and know how to connect to them? Now, I know that this is a process. In 1984, when God regenerated me, I knew a little bit about people because I've been living in the world for 25 years, but I didn't know people through a biblical lens. I didn't have a biblical hermeneutic, and so I didn't know how to interpret people. And then in the late 90s, as I began to work on my master's in biblical counseling, I, I recognized prior to that, I, I didn't know how to apply the Bible to people's lives either. I've been a Christian for now well over a decade, maybe almost, almost 15 years by that time, and I didn't know how to apply the Bible. And so this is a process. When I was born again, I didn't know much about humanity through a biblical lens. And then as I matured in the Bible, I really didn't know how to apply it very well, practically. And so I don't want you to beat yourself up. But we do want to get on in a pathway. We want to set a trajectory to where we understand the Bible, which will give us insight into our souls, our psyche, and it will help us to understand others as well so that we can be relational. Tip number six, being available. When he, when he did choose to connect with others, he made himself available. And so you have to choose. I am going to connect with other people. And to do that, well, you have to be available. You can't sit at home in your isolated silo and say, I'm going to connect with other people. And you'll never be available and you'll never connect with other people. We need more than good intentions to be friends with dirt clods. We must make ourselves available. It's kind of what I was illustrating earlier when you go in the church meeting as a visitor. You've never been there before. I'm not going to go and just sit down, plop down in my chair, fold my arms across my chest, and sit there waiting for somebody to come and shake my hand. That is not being available. That actually looks more like a do not enter sign. With a ready heart and a focused mind, Christ put himself in places where others could find him to receive his help. And we see that in John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, with the story of Nicodemus. Jesus was available. Nicodemus knew it. He was drawn to him, and he came to Jesus with his questions. Do you create space in your life to care for others? Tip number seven, being hospitable. I had lunch with a man once upon a time who told me that the primary reasons that he bought his house was because of how it was laid out. He spent time thinking about how to build his life with others. Part of this worldview meant creating functional space in his life, in his home specifically, so others could enter into his world. And so the tip number seven is being hospitable. I'm using a unique illustration of that about this gentleman who actually bought the house because it was laid out. Now, what I mean by that is that it was a two-story house, and the, the bottom story was really just for hospitality. There was a kitchen, a living room, another room, and that was pretty much it. The washer and the dryer, the bathrooms. There was one bathroom downstairs. There were bathrooms and the bedrooms. Everything was upstairs. They lived upstairs. It's kind of like a in Europe, sometimes you'll see stores where the bottom floor is the store and then the upper level is where the family lives well 
that's the idea that we have here. And I thought that was really fantastic because he had a hospitable hospitable <laughs> hospitality uh, mindset. And again, this is just one illustration of how to, how to do that. But what he wanted to do is open himself up and to invite people into his world. And so the question is, do people feel invited into your world? As opposed to the person who comes in and sits down and crosses their arms and it pretty much looks like a dare. I dare you to come and speak to me. There want to be an openness and invitedness about ourselves. And so tips five through seven, providing attitude and context for others. They're relational, available, hospitable. Tips eight through 11, leading others by your humility. Tip number eight, being intentional. I kind of talked about this in Hebrews chapter 10. Consider how to stir one another up to loving good deeds. Building relationally with others is a character trait of leaders. Now, truly, every Christian is a leader. We're leading people, meaning other people are following, other people are looking at us. We are an example, whether we know it or not, like it or not. Whether we step into it or not, we are an example. We can be a good example. We can be a bad example. A good example of a good biblical leader is a person who is relationally with others. Now, for some people, that's easier to do. Some of us have to work harder because we're just not social creatures. I would be one of those individuals. My wife is a super social person. It's very easy for her to relate to other people. For me, it's not. Uh, for me, it is work because my natural pro proclivity is to not just isolate in an Adamic way. I'm just not a talker. I shared this recently at a conference, and a gentleman came up to me afterwards, and he said, oh, it's good to know that you're an introvert, that I am one too. Uh, I have always, uh, now again, the Bible, um, that's not the Bible language for saying what I'm saying, but we understand it culturally with, with the euphemism of uh, int introvert. And I'll use that language here to communicate what, what I need to communicate. But I've always been an intro, introvert. I've never been a talker, never in my life. Never had to, never been challenged to, never wanted to. I've never felt the need uh, to talk. I always gravitated toward people who were mouthy. And I mean that not in the pejorative, that they know how to talk. Most of my friends, I was talking to a friend today uh, by phone, and I was telling him, that uh, one of the reasons we gravitate toward each other is that you, you are a born talker and I'm a born listener. Now, that's one of the reasons that I've done pretty well at counseling because I do listen well. That part comes easy to me. Talking well does not. And as I was telling my friend that you talk, you have the gift of gab. And I say that in the kindest of ways, and I have the gift of non-gab. Now, we're really not good for each other because there's no challenge to it. So we can come together and and he can do what he does. He's operating in his strength. And I don't have to say anything. I'm operating in my strength. But I told him that when I come together with a person that's not a talker, then we're both standing there looking at our shoes because talking is not what we do. And so a number of years ago, probably two and a half decades, maybe three, a little over three decades ago, I had to come to terms with the gospel, meaning the gospel is about going. The gospel has a forward impulse to it. The gospel has an edge to it. It's about going. And I could not say that, well, I was born this way. This is my personality. Oh, sure, I could say those things, no doubt. But I could not say that with integrity. I could not say those things with honesty. 
I could not say those things and be disconnected from the reality that in the truth, I'm making excuses. And I'm using my personality as an excuse to be quiet when the gospel is telling me that you need to go and make disciples, and leadership is 95% communication. Imagine God trying to lead us without communicating. We would not have his word, and we have to have words. And a person that doesn't use words is a lousy leader. Being relational, Building relationally with others is a character trait of leaders, and if you're going to lead, then you have to communicate. And you can't fall back to, this is how God made me. Leaders seek out others, which is the intentional activity of Christians who have been humbled by the gospel. And that's the key. That's the secret. You have to come to terms with the gospel and be recalibrated by the gospel if you're one of those people that's not given naturally to talking. Now, for those of you who talk, maybe you need another kind of calibration where you learn to listen. These leaders have a vision for the task. Followers do not have the foresight or gumption to exercise this kind of relational leadership. They are myopic. They can only think about themselves. They have no gumption, no intentionality, no confidence, and they just won't do it, and that is sad. They're still leading. They're just not leading the right way. The question, tip number eight, being intentional. Are you on the lookout for others? How can you invest in their lives? Number nine, being honest. I will if you will, quote, end quote, is the unspoken mantra of the tentative. I'll be honest if you'll be honest. You go first. Rarely will a person be the first to demonstrate honesty about their life. If you want a person to be honest with you, then you're going to have to lead with your honesty. This is a key for counseling. We talk about this in our Mastermind program. When you're counseling someone or discipling someone, there will be some tentativeness on their part. Their Adamic tendencies will kick in. They will desire to be shallow. They will want to hide behind their fig leaves. They may be coming to you for counseling, but there's an isolation factor involved that they will not want to reveal to you all the things, the necessary things that are going on in their lives. There's a way to dispel that that you can deconstruct that thing that is between you all, and you do that by being honest. Share what's going on in your life. Share a struggle in your life appropriately, but let them know that you don't have it all together because that is part of the problem. Someone comes to you in a discipleship context, they will assume that you, ha you have it all together, and that people have thought that about me for many years until they get to know me, and then they recognize, oh, well, he doesn't, <laughs> he doesn't have it together. And so what you want to do with all discretion is that you want to be honest with them. Lead with your honesty. Open the door. And many times you will find that that will be very releasing to someone, and it will help them to be honest. Being honest is being truthful. Not being honest is being fearful and maybe deceptive. It doesn't have to be deceptive in the, the most sin way that we think about deceptiveness. It could be that you're just afraid. Not trying to be deceptive, but they are afraid. And so not being honest could be more about fear, or then again, it could be more about deception. There is a tentative element that hinders truth-telling, and you can dispel the tentativeness by being a truth-teller yourself.
How does your example, here's the question for tip number nine, being honest, how does your example of honesty motivate others toward honesty? Number 10, being vulnerable. Weakness is strength in God's economy. We see this in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. As we see that acted out on the cross, they thought it was foolish. They thought it was weakness. It was wisdom. It was power. Weakness is strength in God's economy. Christ was willing to become nothing so that he could help us. Your potential friend, let's say, struggles with sin. If you want them to open up about their struggles, your vulnerability will be critical to that end. And so again, just like you would demonstrate, lead by your appropriate honesty. You want to lead by vulnerability. You don't want to come across strong in a human sense as the person who has it all together. You have a personification of yourself that you present to them, but that's not the real you. You're hiding behind fig leaves, presenting your representative out there. And they're engaging your representative, but not engaging you because you're unwilling to be vulnerable, because vulnerability is weakness and you don't want to be weak, not realizing that when I am weak, then I am strong. And so how appropriately vulnerable are you around your friends? Tip number 10, vulnerability, being vulnerable. Tip number 11, being transparent. Adamic tendencies tempt us to cover up whenever possible. Here come the fig leaves. Wise and transparent people are rare in our world. Now, I'm, I'm modifying transparency with wisdom, and so I conjoin those two thoughts with the conjunction and. Wise and transparent people are rare in our world. We have some people on social media who are transparent, but they're fools because they do not understand wise transparency. And so they, they're transparent. They say things, but they should not be saying those things, but they are fools. A wise and transparent person, they are rare. They are appropriately transparent, but it is the wisdom that modulates the transparency. It is refreshing to be around a person who does not mind sharing their true self with you with discretion. One of the remarkable traits of our Savior was his willingness to be real with others. We see that in John eleven thirty five, It says, Jesus wept. The next verse says, in verse number 36, well, the Pharisees were there and they saw that. They saw his transparency, and it was remarkable, as they stated, how much he loved him. Jesus was willing to be honest, to be vulnerable, and to be transparent in that moment. And it had an impact on the unregenerate world. What kind of book are you, open or closed? Now, if you are an open book, are you a wise open book? If you are closed, well, then there is some explaining to do. And so I realize this is a closed-ended question, but I would uh, it appeal to you to have a conversation for transformation around this question. What kind of book are you, open or close? 17 tips. This, these are tips 8 through 11. The category is leading others by your humility. The four tips are intentional, honest, vulnerable, transparent. 
Now let's look at tips 12 through 16, the final batch. Motivating others toward Christ. Tip number 12, being encouraging. God motivates us primarily by His grace. To hang out with God is to be encouraged by God. The most encouraging thing God ever did for us was to send His Son to rescue us from ourselves. He could have punished us, that He chose another course of action. It was through His kindness that we were changed. And we see that in Romans 2.4. Don't you know that the kindness of God leads to repentance? As we pondered, as we reflected, meditated, thought about, heard about, Christ dying on the cross, as horrible as that violent death was, we also recognize that that was the kindness of God. And through that kindness, we were motivated to repent. The kindness of God leads to change. It was encouraging us. He did not condemn us. He encouraged us. Hey, there is a pathway forward. I want to encourage you. I want to motivate you to move forward. My son died on a cross, and you will be free from all of your sin, past, present, and future. And so we repented. We changed. We became Christians. After people spend time with you, how are they affected? Are they generally encouraged or are they discouraged? Are you an encourager or a discourager? Now, I'm not saying that you. this means that you withhold all corrective care. One of the ways that you can encourage a person is by correcting them. And so when I talk about being encouraging, I'm, I'm not talking about being that kind of person that never says anything difficult, never says anything challenging. As a matter of fact, that is not the kind of friend that you want. Friends who rubber stamp you, agree with everything that you do, will not speak into your life things that they know they should say to you. That is not your friend. Uh, that is a flatterer. That is not encouraging. You see, we were encouraged by God, but part of that encouragement was him telling us that we were going to die and go to hell uh, if we did not repent of our sins. That was part of the motivation for us. And so, yeah, the kindness of God leads to repentance, but packed inside that kindness of God, packed inside the cross of Christ that tells us that we will never be able to condemn, uh, never be condemned, is a realization that we are condemned and we need a path forward. We need a strong soul speaking into our lives, encouraging us to move forward. And many times those encouraging words have the implication that if you don't do this, I'm motivating you by grace but there's a reason that I'm doing that, because the path that you're going down is a bad path. Tip number 12, being encouraging. Number 13, being gracious. Interacting with fallen people is challenging at times. Disappointment is certain. You know this. Remember, dirt, rubbing against dirt will produce more dirt. If you plan to go beyond being superficial, and you're in a relationship for the long haul, then you're going to be disappointed. This is what makes dating so fantastic, because there are a few disappointments in dating. And when the disappointments stack up too much, then you break up with that relationship. This what's what makes an uh, online community so wonderful. Uh, everything is great and fabulous. But if you hang in that online community for a, a long time, for the long haul, then there will be disappointment along the way, and that will be the test. 
uh, if you're if you're a true friend or a person that cannot work through the disappointment because disappointment will happen. Therefore, we want to overlook. We want to be gracious. We want to be kind. We're not withholding rebuke. We're not withholding corrective care. As I was saying earlier about encouragement, we could take words like encouragement and gracious and pack them so much that it's actually a softness and that there's so much in there that it's missing some important things that should be in there. Are you more aware of the grace of God in your friend's life or where they are failing? And so how do you look at them? Uh, More about the grace of God, they're going to be guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. What God has begun, he's going to complete as we read in Philippians 1.6. And so we put the accent mark on what God is going to do ultimately in their life, not putting the accent mark on where they are failing. Paul was very much aware of the grace of God in the Corinthians' life. It would be so easy to focus on all the failures of the Corinthians, but that is not how Paul thought about them. And again, you can read that in the first nine verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse number 14, being discerning, all things will not be as they appear with your new friends. Prepare to be surprised. The doctrine of sin informs us how people are not perfect. Don't overinflate your expectations or you will be disappointed when you get the whole scoop on your new friend. Going back to the dating relationship, everything is perfect and wonderful for the first day, the first week, the first month. But the more that you spend time together, the more you're going to see more of the individual that you're with. And of course, as you know, strangers marry strangers. And so it doesn't matter how long you've been dating, one month, one year, three years, You do not know them until you start living with them, and we can have overinflated expectations, which, depending on how overinflated they are, will determine how far you're going to fall when you're disappointed once you get the whole scoop on your new friend. So be discerning, not being suspicious. You don't want to enter into a relationship with a cynical eye or with a suspicious mind. But you want to be discerning. You want to have a good understanding of anthropology and hermeneology, meaning you have a good understanding of the teaching regarding humanity and the teaching regarding sin. Because the more time you spend with them, the chances of being disappointed by them is 100%. Are your expectations regarding others informed by the Word of God or, or by personal preferences? You may assess your answer by how disappointed you become in people. And by and large, people are disappointed in people more times than not because of preferences, not because somebody is breaking God's God's word, somebody sinning against God's word. Usually it's our preferences that get in our way and disrupt our relationships. Tip number 15, being intrusive. I've talked about this earlier with, uh, with uh, Hebrews chapter 10. Consider how to spur one another on to loving good deeds. If you have their best interest at heart and you're in the relationship for them rather than for yourself, you love God and love others, you are ready to go deeper. If you practice what I've said thus far, they will more than likely let you explore their hearts and build with them because you've been patient, you've been building well along the way, and now you can start going deeper You can be incrementally intrusive in their lives bit by bit as you test the waters, but now you're moving forward. You have forward progression because you have built somewhat of a fortified relational bridge at this point. The question is, are you afraid? 
to explore a person's heart with them, to care for them at that level, that you want to come alongside them, to help them, to be that good friend. Iron sharpening iron means you got to go deeper with them because their words come from their heart. Their behaviors come from their heart. And if you want to be a good friend and help them, then, well, you have to be willing to get inside their souls and and help them explore, be that good friend, be that sounding board, be that person of wisdom. And you're talking about the deeper things between them and the Lord and, and them and you, you're being appropriately intrusive. Verse number 16, or tip number 16, rather, being trustworthy. This is the final tip. A biblical friendship is something you must steward. It's a treasure that takes time to cultivate and grow. No one enjoys suffering, and most people would like a true friend to share their struggles with. They don't want to struggle alone. If you have poured yourself into a relationship and they have reciprocated, there's a responsibility to take care of that trust. Now we're at the deepest end of the pool. This is the most intimate of the relationship because, I mean, you see the word here on the screen, reciprocality, reciprocated. Now is both of you doing the same thing to each other. It's not a unidirectional relationship. Most of your relationships will be unidirectional or limited reciprocality because you don't have the time. You'll spend more time building relationally in a unidirectional way because it's just easier to help people and to pour yourself into other people. But in order to build a reciprocal relationship, it takes way more time, as you can see through these 16 tips, and there will be very few that will want to go that far with you to enter into the innermost circle. But when you are there with someone, now primarily that should be your spouse. If you're married, that should be your spouse. That's the most obvious candidate for a reciprocal relationship because you won't spend more time with anyone else than with your spouse, even more than your children. But there is a stewardship responsibility on the other end of that. So as they share their heart with you, they place their heart into your hands, you have to steward that relationship. They trust you. You don't gossip about them, slander them. Uh, You steward it carefully with love, with grace, with maturity, with wisdom, with compassion, with patience. Are you a trusted friend stewarding the precious and secret truths of others. 17 tips to building relationally with others. This is tip number 16. Tips 12 through 16 is what I've been covering. The category is motivating others toward Christ. The tips were encouraging, gracious, discerning, intrusive, and trustworthy. Now, the final tip, number 17, doing it right. So this is your test. I'll walk through a few questions. You're welcome to screenshot these. And again, these will be great conversations with your most intimate friend or maybe in a small group context. Number one, gratitude is the emotive measurement of the Christ-centered heart. If people wear you down to the point of continual frustration, then something is not right with you. If people wear you down, there's something wrong with you. Maybe it's your time management. Maybe it's your fear of saying no, of turning people away. You can't be everybody's friend. Maybe you don't have the maturity to handle people's truth. Also said, handle their problems. Gratitude is the emotive measurement of the Christ-centered heart. And so if if you have a Christ-centered heart, then you're grateful. Those two things go hand in hand. A Christ-centered heart is a grateful heart. Our greatest problem in life was resolved at the cross. 
And so if there's another problem in our life that's overwhelming us to continual frustration, well, then we don't have a Christ-centered heart as measured, as noted by a lack of gratitude, meaning there's something wrong with us. Number two, there will be times when people will frustrate you, but you should not stay that way for long. And so now I'm distinguishing between episodes and patterns. Of course, there will be episodes in your life where you'll be frustrated with somebody. Grace overpowers sin, and gratitude characterizes the grace-managed person. And so you should not stay that way for long. Number three, the opposite of the grateful heart is the grumbling heart. Criticalness, complaints, grumbling, cynicism, they're all culprits of the person with a wrong view of relationship. And so I would encourage you to turn all these statements into questions and then have a discussion, at least with one other person, the person who is most intimate with you, number four. Something is amiss in the grumbler's theology of friendships. Something is desired but not received, which you will discern by a lack of gratitude. A person with a lack of gratitude is more than likely a grumbler, and there's something amiss in their theology of friendships. Now, again, this statement is in the context of building relationally with others. We could be grumbly about other things, but I'm talking about relationships, a theology of friendships. There's something desired, it's not received, and you'll discern that by a lack of gratitude. Number five, are you characterized by gratitude when it comes to your relationship, even the non-reciprocal ones? Here's the outline, 17 quick and dirty tips for building relationships. I will not repeat all 17 of these, but you see them on the screen. And so you can look at them, take a screenshot, uh, go back through these tips. They have questions at the bottom of each one of them. I think it would be instructive, insightful. Hopefully, uh, there, there can be some recalibration, some repentance as you think through your relationships, and then have this discussion with other people. This webinar would actually be fantastic in a small group or in a group setting of men or women. As we talk about marriage would be also great because that is the most intimate relationship that a man and woman can have is the person that they have married. And if they're not building deeply in their marriage relationship, then something is broken. Quite frankly, something is broken in the marriage. So 17 quick and dirty tips for building a relationship. The big idea for broken, fallen people to live well with each other. It requires getting into the muckiness of each other's lives. Before you go, I would appeal to you, if you would, would you pray for our ministry, Life Over Coffee? We believe that any two people can come together and resolve their problems over coffee or the beverage of their choice. Uh, we use coffee because of the ubiquitous understanding of it. And it just makes sense. It communicates a vibe that's very important to us. It is relational. And we want people to come together and work through their issues. And so we do life over coffee. Would you pray that God would continue to bless our ministry, help us to continue to reach out globally? Uh, we are a cyber ministry. We are cyber missionaries, nomadic, living in cyberspace, wrapping the globe every day of our lives 24-7. Our shop never closes. Because of the internet and technologies that we use, please pray for God's favor on our ministry. And then follow us on any platform where you find us. We're on a lot of them, but choose one and follow. And then also share our resources with other people. I would be most grateful if you would do that. And you're welcome to do that because most of our resources are free. And we encourage people, not just follow us, but share 
Our mission statement is that we bring hope and help to you and others. And so we are dependent upon you to share with the others in your world. And then there's a few of you who are able to support our ministry. Would you take us on as missionaries? Would you take on Life Over Coffee and say, we're going to support this ministry on a monthly or annual basis? Now, some of you may want to do that so that you can access our private forums. We are a monologue ministry out in the public domain because there are hundreds of thousands of people that we communicate on an annual basis, and we cannot talk to 100,000 people, and so it's monologue. However, we have a dialogue ministry, and that's our supporting membership forums. And so if you want to be part of our private community, it's much smaller than you can become a supporting member. Perhaps some of you are not interested in that, but you would like to support us, and you can do that through donations, one-time donation, recurring donations, annual donations, But our resources are mostly free, and the only way that they can be free is for a small army of people to financially underwrite our ministry. And so if you're willing to do that or have questions about that, please contact us at Life Over Coffee. Perhaps some of you might want to be a mastermind student. This is our all-online school where we train people to do the work of discipleship to help other people, to become a biblical counselor, to mature in the gifting that God has given you. Everybody is different. You have different capacities. But this is 100% online. You never have to travel anywhere. You can do it anywhere as long as you have access to the Internet. And it's also self-paced. The title of this presentation is 17 Quick and Dirty Tips for Building a Relationship. Thank you so much for watching it. I am Rick Thomas, and you can find me at lifeovercoffee.com. That is my coffee shop, and this is where we have conversations for transformation. Please share this information with a friend or two, and I trust that it will spark that conversation for transformation. Thank you so much for taking part of this presentation. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com. 